Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back for part two of our interview with Mahendra Ramsinghani. In this installment, we will cover the expected cadence and frequency for board meetings, the process of the best board meetings, how board makeup and responsibilities change over time, the most common missteps boards make, and we'll wrap up with some more info on Mahendra, key takeaways, and a tip of the week. Here's part two of the interview on Startup Boards. So you've had exposure to a number of different boards, probably effective ones and ineffective. Can you talk about the cadence and the frequency with which the board meetings occur with some of the more effective ones that you've seen? Yeah, Nick, the one discipline entrepreneurs need to build in is as soon as they raise a round, and even if it's a small round, even if it's $100,000 coming in, if I'm the startup CEO, I would want to set the annual cadence right off the bat to say, Nick, uh, you as a valued board member are a busy guy. I would love if we can just block the calendar off for the next 12 months. And two hours, maybe three every third Thursday of every month, okay? And ideally, I encourage entrepreneurs to say, do it around a meal. And this is Brad's uh, you know, philosophy of building the board dynamics around the meal is very important because you know, your crazy stuff starts to happen. You, know, you may not know the other board member and that other board member may try to do things to impress you. And all of this crazy stuff starts to happen, which is very wrong. You know, our goal is to serve the CEO. So the first thing the CEO needs to do is set the annual calendar, and then do it around a meal or something informal initially where the other board members get to know each other, they get to respect each other, like each other, because that's a family itself that needs to dance with each other. Their goal should be not to show each other how smart they are. Their goal should be to serve the CEO better. Now, uh, it need not be a crazy competition where you know, where uh, everybody's going berserk, but it is in a subtle way, we all want to make sure that we're here to serve the CEO and not to prove anything to each other. And sometimes you start to see the dynamic where one board member will uh, try to prove some things to other board members. And, you know, that's just uh, creates this negative vortex of uh, energy and uh, does not help. Is this part of the reason, I I know you can't speak for Brad, but is this part of the reason why he's uh, maybe not a huge fan of observers? Because you get these extended boards of many people and many non-voting observer members that are maybe trying to one-up or impress some of the director-level folks? 
I'm sure Brad has his own experiences. You know, generally, I've seen that VCs have some amount of observer dynamic. If it sort of starts to take a life of its own, you know, I've seen a lot of VCs get restless about that. You know, I can narrate my own example. My first board meeting, I was an observer. And I was clearly out of line in trying to jump in, trying to do things that were completely unexpected of observers. And when I look back, it's like, gosh, you know, I'm glad that the VCs who were the formal board members were kind to me and let me learn as I went along. But <laughs> uh, but it, I was creating a lot of distraction in the room. I was being a pain in the ass to the CEO. And when I think about all that, part of that was the motivation to start uh, not only reforming your own self, but write a book to say bad behavior can occur in come from any side, right? It can <laughs> come from an observer. It can come from VC. It can come from a CEO. Uh, I feel like uh, there is absolutely no challenge with observers. I've known some observers to actually be more valuable than the board members. You know, Tim Peterson, who's with Arboretum Ventures, he described a case study to me with one of the companies, one of their portfolio companies. You know, they had a small investment in this company and uh, Tim was the observer. But over the years, he contributed so much to the company that the CEO would treat him as a confidant. That company eventually went public and they had a huge outcome. And I feel like having a, an observer label does not mean anything to me these days because I just look at the person and say, is this person doing what is expected of them? Are they engaging well with the other board members to ask uh, if this is the right way to help the CEO? Are they asking good questions to the CEO in an intelligent manner? And uh, that's what it boils down to, I think. Going to ask you to get in the weeds for a second here, but Mahendra, can you talk about the board meeting itself? and how sort of the best board meetings operate? I can speak to the earlier uh, stages of the board meetings and uh, share some of my own experience. Having Brad as the, the co-author and the thought leader around the book was critical because he has seen this full arc of companies going through growth stages. You know, one of their companies just went public, Fitbit. And when boards reach that level where it's a pre-IPO company or now a, a public company, there is a lot of things that change. But I think a good board meeting in earlier stages, which is where I've had a lot of experience, if I could sort of boil it down to two or three different pieces, is it, it boils down to very good communication. So everybody's aware of what is going on. The second step of that piece is that the CEO is making sure the board is aware of two critical metrics. I mean, I can produce 45 KPIs, but at a startup stage, some of that is unnecessary. The only two KPIs as a startup CEO that I want to take to my board is when is my development phase going to be completed and what does the launch cycle look like? Okay, so we are going to launch on November 1st and the first five enterprise software customers are going to be beta and this is how we're going to approach that. So I, I know what the critical milestone is. The second critical metric is my cash position. Producing elaborate balance sheets, income statements when there is no income or cash flow is good, is healthy. But really what the board, if I flip myself back to the board uh, side or the investor side, all I want to know is how much cash is there in the bank and how many months of life that gives us. You know, we have eight months of cash, we have nine months of cash, good. Because the next stage of this company is going to be revenues, assuming the product launch follows the same sort of uh, predicted uh, milestone. And the next stage of the financial side of it is going to be raising the next round. So those are the two key metrics that a startup CEO should make sure the board is aware. So communication and awareness around that is very, very important. 
I think the second part of the emotional dynamic, the board members or the investors need to know that this is going to be a very choppy ride. Teams fall apart. Startup CEOs sometimes uh, get exhausted. Markets don't pan out. It always takes twice as longer and twice as much. So having the emotional construct that there are going to be a lot of mess-ups along this way. We are all in the small boat. There are 30-foot waves. There is going to be vomit. There is going to be screaming. <laughs> but you know, but all of us have to keep rowing, not yell at each other, but keep looking at that island where we are going to, keep rowing, and see if we can support the captain. And that's sort of the emotional construct everybody needs to have. So I think if those two things exist, good communication and good emotional balance, no matter how big those waves may be, we'll have fun. Great. Yeah, you talk about in the book uh, some of the key roles and and uh, responsibilities of the board. Can you talk now about how the startup boards make up and how those responsibilities may evolve over the course of growth and over the course of the fundraising stages? Yeah, great question, Nick. I think the evolution of the board in the early stages is sort of product development and financing, as we just discussed. But then the second stage, let's say you start to grow into sales. Even the first 12 months of post-launch are just tracking number of customers, starting to track some possible break-even, gross margins maybe, if you're lucky, you know. <laughs> gross margins don't come into play for quite some time, but just focusing on growth initially and, and just being aware of what the cost structure looks like. So now the board has to shift their thinking from largely emotional because, you know, that's the first phase of the journey. And I, I can sort of almost correlate this to the parenting role, right? The kids are are very young. You're largely emotionally sort of cuddling them, helping them walk, helping them ride their bicycles. You're not sort of throwing KPIs at them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but once they go out and start to make money, let's say they've graduated, now they start to make money. At that time, you might say, oh, by the way, the minimum wage is this much. How are you comparing with that metric, right? Or your peers, all of them who graduated from such and such school are all doing this kind of work, making this much money. How are you comparing to that universe of companies? How are you comparing to managing your costs? So I think now the discipline part starts to take over. And this is where you have the board, which is a lot more operationally tuned in. They also start to ask harder questions around the financials. So now the shift is managing for growth versus managing for launch. Even the concept of the board sometimes changes. You know, I deeply admire two gentlemen who are with this fund in Kalamazoo called T-Gap Ventures, Pete Farner and Jack Adams. Both of them have been in this business for about 30 years. And what Jack told me was fascinating. He said, look, I don't see us as a fund having a board seat for the entire arc of the, the company's life cycle. I see me stepping in, Jack stepping in for one phase of the company's growth. Then I see Pete stepping in because he's very good at doing these things. And so I think the board also uh, is uh, somewhat of an evolving uh, board where they're stepping in with this different stages of this relay race and saying the relay baton that you're carrying is becoming heavier, it's becoming more complex. And so this is how we need to help you to make sure that the next set of milestones can be tackled effectively. Instead of when you look at the final stage, so if you take Fitbit, which has just went public, the board is subject to regulatory, legal, public company board. It's a very visible board, subject to lawsuits, subject to all kinds of exposure. So now that board is behaving in a very, very different manner compared to the three-member board that the journey started with. It's, it's just being aware that this is a constantly evolving phase. And the best way a startup CEO can look at the board is say, 
is this a group of people that can help me meet my milestones over the next 12 to 24 months? And do the number of seats change as well over that time period? Yes, yes. The number, certainly uh, at a startup stage, if you have, let's say, three, I would say public boards tend to be nine, possibly bigger. And so you have three, from three you jump to five, from five you'll jump to maybe seven, and so on. And then, of course, as the, the multiple rounds of financing occurs, you have different investors who express interest in taking a board seat. So the most current series and the lead investor will end up being probably the chairperson. But then you have some of the previous investors and somebody who may be the independent helping at the board level. So yes, it's sort of a classic evolution of these odd numbers, you know, three, five, seven, nine, and onwards. What are some of the most common missteps and issues that you've seen with boards? Ah, so many of them. (laughs) (laughs) How much time do we have? (laughs) Exactly. How much time do we have? Can we do a separate podcast (laughs) only on the board? (laughs) (laughs) But no, I think the the one misstep that occurs is that because this is such a rapidly evolving mini universe, the continuity is often uh, lost. So if I step off of a board and the next person that comes in, you know, they're coming in gold. They don't know what has happened. They don't know the size of the board. They don't know where the holes are, who's vomited where, what experiments have already been done. And so this continuity, board members themselves need to invest time in making sure that when they're vacating a chair to somebody else, they need to take that member out for a glass of wine or dinner or something and make sure that in a very objective way, not using their personal biases because that CEO, he never returned my calls or he never heard my opinions when I was expressing my views, etc. They have to be in a very objective seat and say, in the past 12 months, these are the great things that have happened to the company. In the next 12 months, here are the five challenges or three critical points that need to be solved for. And I'm handing my baby to you so that you can help them solve these problems. seems like a lot of this still comes down to uh, relationships building that relationship and and understanding each other is pretty important as you evolve across the startup's growth. That's very true, Nick. You know, a lot of uh, the dynamics tend to be mostly transactional around a very logical framework, which is, hey, look, I'm stepping off the board. The new guy is stepping in. Let them figure this out. I need to go and attend to my next board meeting or my next opportunity or next thing. I think what we fail to realize in this process is that that abrupt handoff does not do justice to the entrepreneur. So if I'm committed to the entrepreneur, my commitment should last till the day the company shuts down or the company is sold and possibly beyond with because this is a personal relationship. We're somewhat of a family that has come together around a common purpose. And so what I've seen good board members do is sort of keep that cognizant approach that even though I'm stepping off the board and my duties, my formal duties as a board member are over effective this date, my emotional duties to this company and the CEO will last for a very long time. Just because my daughter goes to school doesn't mean that I'm completely checked out. Yes, four or five hours in a day, the teacher becomes the de facto parent, if you will. And when I go to drop my daughter to school, I'll tell her, you know, last night our daughter slept a little uh, less. And so today she might be needing a little more attention at school, you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, once the teacher has the reference point, she knows exactly how to uh, deal with her. And then if I'm picking her up and she says, yeah, the kids were playing today and she fell off this bicycle. And so I see the bruised knee and then I can 
be a little more caring for my daughter, you know, over the next 24 hours versus not even being aware that there was something that happened. So it's just being cognizant of this fact that our duties don't end very abruptly. I still check in with companies I have no formal relationship with. And this has been like two, three years I've stepped off from the boards, but just good, healthy behavior to maintain these relationships because entrepreneurs are fighting a very hard battle. Just to wrap up here, Mahendra, can you talk about what you're currently most focused on? So uh, cybersecurity is this one area that fascinates me completely now, and I'm immersing myself into it. I'm just sort of you know, drinking from the fire hose, learning from all the experts, surrounding myself with people who are uh, very, very savvy technically, and you know, uh, learning about what opportunities are evolving in the space. The interesting part about this vertical, Nick, as you know, is that you have hackers or adversaries that are becoming very, very sophisticated. And their motivations have changed dramatically. Their motivations earlier would be to show their peer group how technically smart I am, right? You know, when you had a 19-year-old breaking into a network, a federal government network or someplace where they're not necessarily allowed, they would then show their peers, hey, look, I got in, by the way, I found this sort of pathway into this network. But today you have nation states, so political motivations, you have intellectual property theft. Those motivations sort of fall into a completely different category of pure financial motivations, steal information and sell it in the open market. So you probably also read about the fact that there was some hacker that would steal public company information and then sell it to hedge fund guys. Yep. There is sort of these kinds of scenarios that start to play out. Now you're starting to see the frontiers of cyber activity at a different level where the Russian hackers are trying to take down Nasdaq or the Chinese hackers are collaborating with some other groups to attack certain countries in a certain way, U.S. and North Korea. So I see this becoming the next generation dance that we will do. And if you want to build a Lockheed Martin in this space, then the time is now. That's my selfish motivation is to say, look, uh, cybersecurity is going to change. It has already changed. It is going to become a lot more specific around healthcare verticals, around uh, critical information, critical infrastructure verticals. Our data is floating everywhere. How do you protect those nuggets? And so that is where I'm spending a lot of my time and thankfully found some very good people to guide me along the way. And that's where there is uh, potentially room for creating some financial returns as well. If we could address any topic in venture, what topic do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak about it? So uh, I think that if you look at venture investment vehicle, I firmly believe that we're still operating with not as much data and not as much uh, logic and process. A lot of investments are made in a very sporadic, somewhat emotional, somewhat impulsive manner. And I feel like there is so much room for us to drink our own Kool-Aid. You know, so when I meet an entrepreneur, I want to see all their data. I want to see their logic. I want to see their customer discovery, blah, blah, blah. But when I look at the LPs assessing funds, of the 86 companies I've invested in, Nick, I know there will be at least 30 of them are going to die. Those are 30 case studies of saving potentially 30 or more million dollars down the road from other investors, Right. And so this post-mortem, in the, in the latest edition of the book, I talk about an example from the medical industry where if a patient dies, all the doctors get together and they talk about this case and they, it's, it's a non-threatening environment. They talk with each other about how this could have become a different outcome, okay? So that's sort of the one uh, aspect of the process. 
On the front end of the process, I'm sure there could be a little more sort of a discipline. And we take this example from pilots. You know, they follow this checklist. And uh, that's the reason why they're able to fly these machines with several hundred people on board without killing them. Right. And so we, uh, we feel like, oh, we're not killing anybody. But really, we're killing the entrepreneur's psyche and their emotions if we don't pay proper attention. We're killing LP's enthusiasm. We're wasting their money, right? I feel like there is a lot of improvement in this whole venture asset class uh, cycle, if you will, that could be done. Uh, nobody's taking the time to do it, the effort to do it. I know, you know, Brad Feld is somebody I deeply admire. He has several examples that he shared with me and in some of his blogs of how they do some of this at Foundry Group. I have been fortunate enough to spend some time at Andreessen Horowitz in an informal way to see how they operate. And that's another firm that is changing the way we do things. But I feel like there is a lot more to be done. And that's one topic that continues to both baffle me and surprise me that nobody is doing much around that. (laughs) And finally here, Mahendra, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? I follow Brad's philosophy. I keep an open door. My LinkedIn, Twitter, my email address is mahen dot r at gmail. You know, I try to help as many as I can and do my best to make the entrepreneurial journey easier. Because at one point we all were in those shoes and we all got kicked around. So yes, I'd love to be of any help to entrepreneurs, especially if they're cybersecurity ones. Then there is a more a selfish way that I engage where we help uh, in a more formal way, but informally I get a lot of entrepreneurs reaching out and do my best to help each one of them. Well, people often ask me how I come up with question sets for the show, and I can confidently say that your book, The Business of Venture Capital, has provided the foundation for my VC knowledge and has driven the majority of the questions on the program. So just want to say a big thanks for writing the book and for sharing your time today. And a big thank you to you as well, Nick, for being uh, so thoughtful in uh, framing your questions and doing all this homework. I hope it benefits your audience. And uh, thank you once again. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. In this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. So awesome getting Mahendra on the program. Let's recap the key takeaways. Number one is called the early group of mentors. Mahendra's position is that one doesn't need a formal board early on, but he does advocate assembling a group of mentors to guide the business and help make sure the entrepreneur doesn't waste a lot of time. 
Just having to report on status once a month to an outsider forces one to measure, show progress, and think about the business from the perspective of an outsider. It makes the entrepreneur do things in a disciplined manner that they wouldn't otherwise do. And it also allows the founder to learn how to articulate both the wins and the losses. This can serve as great practice for standard reporting and also the storytelling that will come when a founder goes through a fundraise. The second key takeaway is called meeting dynamics and expectations. On cadence, Mahendra advised to set meetings up front upon closing the investment. Agree together on what the right meeting frequency is for the next 12 months and get everything on the calendar. He also suggested to build the board meeting around a meal. And the purpose of the meal is not just the entrepreneur-investor relationship. It's about the relationship between investors. The goal is to assemble a board of people that are comfortable and friendly enough with one another to put their own agendas aside and focus on the fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders. And finally, key takeaway number three here is board roles and responsibilities. Mahendra discussed how a board's role shifts between the early phase and the growth financing phase. After the professional round of capital, the focus should be on product development and financing. He mentioned two critical KPIs to measure. Number one was launch timing. When is the development phase complete and what does the launch cycle look like? And number two was cash timing. How much cash is in the bank and how many months of life does that give us? Then we discussed how at the second stage, there is a shift from managing for launch to managing for growth. Here, the board should be focused on sales. When seats are awarded, the founder and existing board should be looking for people with growth expertise or customer relationships. And the number of board members, typically an odd number, may increase from three to five to seven as the startup progresses from pre-product to growth to scale and more shareholders are introduced. And from a functional standpoint, we covered the decisions that are within board jurisdiction versus those that are not. The simple rule for a founder is to ask, is this an operational decision or an equity decision? Anything that affects the financing or cap table is a board decision. Everything else is the founding team's decision. And Mahendra's one caveat here is that while major operational or business decisions are the responsibility of the startup, it's always good to keep the board apprised of these decisions and get their blessing. When Tom Tungus was on the program, he discussed his role as a decision auditor. If one thinks of their board as a strategic consulting group that serves as an experienced and insightful sounding board, that can be a major asset to the business. Let's wrap up with a tip of the week, and this week's tip is called the Board Meeting Update Report. A well-run, productive board meeting is often the exception and not the rule. This can be due to board members that get off-topic or spend too much time on non-critical issues. But any good board meeting begins with structure, and this is largely driven by the entrepreneur. And as an investor, it's best to establish not only the board meeting frequency, but also the expectation of what will be reviewed. For many founders, this will be their first experience working with a board. So I wanted to take this week's tip to break down the components and items that should be included and reviewed in an efficient board meeting. First off, the format by which the information delivered is not as important. This often could be a standard Word doc, a PowerPoint, or just an email report. 
It's the components included that really matter. First off is the summary. Most material on best practices here advises to start off with a summary. How did the last quarter go? What major wins and losses did the business experience? Are there a few key data points, driving success or failure, that should be called out? This section should be brief, concise, and may consist of a few sentences and a few bullets. The second component of a strong board review should be an operational update. This serves as a high-level status report of the major areas of the business, including financials, product, KPIs, and team. I'm going to touch on each of these areas and some of the key questions that should be answered with regards to each. The first is the financial overview. What is the cash position? What's the fume date? How much is being burned per month? Are there any key hiring or office decisions that will alter burn going forward? The next major area is a product overview. What's the launch status? Has product market fit been achieved? What key product changes have or will be made? Does the current embodiment of the product allow for mass market access? One should think about the critical product objectives and include them here. The next area of overview is on KPIs. What are the top three to five things that are most critical to business success? Where is the business at currently versus the original forecast or plan? What do the next 12 months look like? What's at risk? When will the new plan numbers be established? An overview of the major KPIs and the progress to date may end up consuming a significant portion of the meeting. And the final major area in the operational review is the team overview. So what are the key positions that need to be filled in the startup? What profile is desired in open executive roles? Why are these hiring decisions necessary? And what KPIs will they impact? Recall John Greathouse's comments in a recent episode that the single biggest contribution of the early stage investor is to help recruit and build a great team. Okay, we've now talked about the summary section and the operational review section. The next major part of the board meeting update report is the strategic review. This is where the founder lays out the three major action items and initiatives for the business. Why are they critical? What is the desired outcome or objective of each? How can a board help in driving these to completion? Often these key initiatives will be related to the KPIs that are being reviewed. If not, the founder and the board may need to think about adding or switching one of the existing KPIs to line up with the key objectives for the business. So what are examples of these key initiatives? Depending on the stage and business type, they could be launching the product on time and budget, customer acquisition and cost per acquisition, expanding net new MRR, increasing engagement and use amongst existing customer sets, margin expansion via cost reductions in direct materials or direct labor, optimizing pricing strategy for either maximum market penetration or maximum margin dollars. The list goes on. There are numerous key objectives for early stage startups that will evolve and change over their life cycle. And the founder can set these initiatives themselves or with the board's input. It's not unusual for these to be a combination of the most critical items to the health and expansion of the business and also the key growth objectives that the next round of investors will be looking for. 
And this doesn't have to be the first time that the investor group ever sees the material. If there are areas of concern or areas in which a specific board member can help, it's always great when the entrepreneur reaches out one-to-one in advance of the board meeting to discuss these areas and get input. Debates in a board meeting are fine, but there should never be an adversarial divide between the CEO and the board members. And a final thought here is on board meeting minutes. While it's good to have a record of items discussed, minutes are really only useful as a reference. It's often better to focus on actions and decisions. At the top of every good minute report is a dated section of key decisions made. I can't tell you how frustrating it can be to regularly revisit major decision items when nothing material has changed. Record the agreed-upon decisions and give those focus by including them at the top of the report. And of course, it's best to explicitly identify the individuals, their actions, and in some cases, the date by which those actions need to be closed. Whether it's an observer, an advisor, or a director, if they offer to help, that action should be included. That's it for this week. Go to the website and sign up for the newsletter today to make sure you're getting special updates and content. And I hope you all have a wonderful holiday and new year. It's been a lot of fun connecting with people in the startup community and creating content here at the Full Ratchet. So I really appreciate all the fans of the program, and I hope you stick with us for a really great slate of topics and guests coming up in 2016. Until then, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. See you next year. Thank you.